This is one of those texts in the Bible that's so rich and overwhelming with spiritual truths that it's, it's almost difficult to fully explain and dig deep into everything that's contained here. I think we could start digging and digging and dig, digging and never reach the bottom of everything that God has to give us here. Um, just in these first 18 verses, if the time allowed for it, I think we could probably do five or six sermons on it. Or we could do one four-hour sermon, if you guys are up for that. But I'm not, so I don't think you guys are either. So our plan for today is to go through this passage and dig as deep as we can in the time we have, but then to take upon yourself the challenge to continue digging into the Word of God for yourself. The way James writes, he doesn't build an entire complex argument like Paul does where he takes five chapters to make his point. James quickly states a truth and moves on to the next one. And so that leaves the hearer and the reader to take the responsibility upon themselves to meditate on that truth and see how it applies to their life. So that's going to be the challenge for all of you this week, and I pray that you would take it up. So we see that there are five paragraphs in this passage, and this morning we'll have five points. So let's read the passage together, and then we'll pray and begin. James, chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change." Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we come to you this morning and we open your word. 
And I pray that, God, you would have grace upon all of us here today, that it would please you to have your spirit move and to show grace to our souls, Lord. We're lacking in so many ways. We're sinful in so many ways. And Lord, we're not worthy of a relationship with you. But by your grace through Christ, it has pleased you to save us. Lord, we pray that it would also please you to give us wisdom so that we may know how to live lives that glorify you more fully. Amen. In verse 1, we see that the author is identified as James and that he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And so the context is he's writing to first century Jewish Christians. Moving on to verse 2 through 4, we see our first point this morning, which is that trials, we see the trials that strengthen faith. James immediately tells his readers to count it all joy when they meet trials of various kinds. What a strange command that is, isn't it? That's what he's going to start out with. It seems opposite to our common sense and reason. Just the idea of trials evokes thoughts of hardship and troubles. They bring pain and difficulties and tears. They often leave us feeling discouraged, even depressed at times. So it just seems odd that he would tell us to count trials as joy. But under the inspiration of the Spirit, this is what God wants to convey to his people. This is what they need to know. Well, in understanding how to count trials as joy, we must understand first that James doesn't mean simply pretend to be happy during difficulties. This isn't a smile and get through it kind of joy. That's not what he means. No, James is telling us that when we're in the midst of trials, we're to remember the truths about who God is. We're to remember that nothing happens by coincidence or chance, and that everything happens by God's order. And since God is in control of all things, we know that though the physical circumstances may be difficult, we can put them into focus and see them through the spiritual realities. We can know that God is using these trials for our good. And it's when we become God-oriented in our thinking through these trials that we are able to count them as joy. We're able to endure them in a way that we weren't before. If you look at verse 3, we're given an explanation of the purposes of these trials. James writes, You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so these purposes, the trials have the purpose of progressively growing us in holiness and likeness to the image of Christ. God's using these to set us apart from the world and to set us apart to himself. And this is the definition of sanctification, isn't it? Growing more and more in the likeness of God and in holiness. And so surely when we see that trials are being used by God to make us more holy, of course we will count it as joy. We have every reason to. 
Imagine that there are two men who at the same time decide they want to get into better shape. They're going to get in the gym and start working out, and so they each go and hire a personal trainer. The first guy shows up on day one, and his trainer's there, and they start working hard every day. And his muscles are sore, and he's not used to this, and he doesn't want to keep going because it hurts. It hurts, and it's painful, and it's difficult. But the trainer says, keep pushing. I know you can do it. I know you can do it. Keep going. Keep going. And he's there supporting him the whole way through it. He reminds him that it's for his good and that this is how you grow. And then we have the other guy. Well, this trainer is completely different. This trainer doesn't want to impose on people. So he says, look, I'm not going to be like this guy. I want you to feel comfortable. I don't ever want to push you past what you're comfort level is, so let's just show up whenever we feel like it, and we'll work hard every now and then, but we're not going to be too committed. Looking a year down the road, which guy is going to be more in shape, and which trainer did their job? It's this one. Looking a year down the road, you're going to see so much growth in this man, and why did he grow? Because his trainer loved him. The trainer loved this man. And that's, that's how we can see God working in the trials of our life. It's because God loves us that these trials are brought. And yes, they're difficult. And they hurt. But a year down the road, we can look back and say, God loved me. God loved me through that trial. This is how we must come to see Trials in our life. We must reorient our way of thinking. We must not only see the here and now, but we must see how God is using this for our good. And so when you face trials, ask those questions. Say, what is God teaching me now? How does he want me to grow? How am I being challenged to be more holy in my conduct in my life? I also want you to notice in verse 2, who are the people that should count it as joy? It is the brothers in Christ. It is those who are in Christ who can count trials as joy. This is something the world does not share with us. Those who are not saved can see no purpose and no benefit of hardships. And so they run away from them as quick as they can and avoid them at all costs. And I'm not saying we should do the opposite and go seek as many trials as we can. But we have the benefit of knowing the reason and the purpose for them. And that is a gift that God has given us. He has given us the gift of trials in our life. So count them as joy when you do face trials. For you know that God is working for your good. Moving on to verse 5 through 8. We see the prayer that seeks wisdom. Verse 5 reads, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Well, in the paragraph above, we saw the purpose of trials was to make us perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Newsflash, we're not there yet. We're all incomplete. Imperfect. So we all need to come to God in prayer. 
We all lack wisdom. And so James is calling for all true believers in Christ to value prayer and to turn to God quickly for His wisdom. And so we see that this is another unique gift that God has ordained for the believer. And since God has graciously given us this gift, it should lead us to more faithful and habitual prayer. We must not think of prayer as simply our wish list where we go like a kid and sit on Santa's lap and let him know all the things we want. That's not how prayer is meant to be. We see here that prayer goes to God seeking His wisdom, seeking His guidance, seeking His mind. This is so opposite of how we view prayer in our world today. So foreign to us. So I pray that you would begin focusing on how you pray. Be intentional on how you pray. Don't just throw up words without thinking about them and start asking for things that you don't even need. And spend, Instead, spend time thinking about God and what His will is and what glorifies Him and pray that He would give you the wisdom to understand those things. And here's the beautiful thing about it is that we see that when we ask for God's wisdom in prayer, it will be given. What a gracious God He is that He will give us the things we need. He delights in giving us His wisdom. So go to Him and ask. But we must notice the condition upon which God's wisdom is given. Look in your Bibles there. It says, Ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because he's double-minded. He's unstable in all of his ways. We must commit to a wholehearted trust in Christ. If we say one minute, I'm trusting you and your wisdom, God, and then the next moment we go off and try to seek our own, that's not really trusting God. We must come to Him for full guidance and in full dependence on His wisdom. Scripture tells us that we're to love the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all of our mind. So if we're to do this, then surely we're to seek Him in prayer with all of our trust and all of our faith as well. But when we see what God expects of us in prayer, we also see how far short we fall of this. My prayer life does not look like how James says it should. Oftentimes I question God. I doubt His goodness. I'm not as quick to turn to Him and seek His wisdom. Whenever you come to these times in your life, be like the man in Mark chapter 9 who said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Say, God, I trust in your wisdom. Help my lack of trust. Give me more trust in your goodness. Pray that he would give you trust to trust him. Number three, in verses 9 through 11, we're met with the identity that unites the church. 
an identity that unites the church. And when you're reading this passage and you come to these verses, they seem very random and out of place at first glance, right? We've been talking about trials and prayer, and all of a sudden James goes into talking about rich and poor men and about how flowers are going to fade away. And it just seems out of place. But whenever we understand that God has ordained trials and we must seek wisdom, what James is saying in these verses is this is going to be one of the main things you need wisdom for. This is one of the main trials Christians face is viewing themselves in light of who they are in Christ as opposed to viewing themselves as who they are in the world's eyes. This is one of the greatest trials we'll face. The poor... We know the poor in this world are never highly esteemed and respected. They're passed over. They're counted as worthless. But James tells this man, let the lowly poor brother boast in his exaltation. Well, what is he to boast in? He has nothing in this world. But he has faith in Christ. He's a, he's a, son, he's a son, of, son, of, son of God, and if he's a son, then heir. So he has everything. So though in this world he does not have much, and he's passed over, in the kingdom's view, he was chosen. And he is exalted, and he has everything to boast in. And so his confidence is not found in his material, immediate circumstances, but his identity and his confidence is found in who he is in Christ. Next, we shift our gears to the rich man who is not to boast in his worldly riches because we see that they will quickly vanish. Like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. And that is so true. I've seen it. My wife planted a garden in our front yard this year, and there were mornings when I'd go out to my car, and there would be on the rose bush there a rose starting to blossom. And I'd never seen this type of rose. It was pink and orange and yellow and red and a tie-dye of colors, and I thought it was the most beautiful flower and I worked 24-hour shifts. And by the time I came home the next morning, it was laying over dead. Well, that didn't last. And that's what James is saying here. Like, it, the beauty of this world is not going to last. What you have in this world will vanish. So don't find your identity in it. If, if you're rich in this world... <laughs> You can buy anything you want. You have the material means to gain anything you desire. But when it comes to spiritual life and spiritual health, you don't have a penny to give God. You're poor. You're needy. So boast in your humiliation to say, yes, in this world I have everything, but I had to come as a poor, needy sinner to Christ. And I boast in that because it led me to God's grace. We also see that we can boast in humiliation and that we can meditate and think about the humility of Christ himself. That for this poor sinner to have anything, 
God had to become a man and die on a cross. He had to be humbled to the point of death. And so that is what we find our pride and our boastfulness in is the glory of Christ. So no longer do the things of this world matter. But what matters is who we are in light of Christ. This is why Paul can say, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. And that's the way the church must think about the believers as well. There's, there's not black and white, there's not young and old, there's no racial and ethnicity and personal interest divisions, because we're all one in Christ. That should be the goal of our congregation. Greg Coleman and I are very good friends, but we have nothing in common. (laughs) He's in his 50s. I'm still young, in my 20s. He's a good old country boy. If I lived more than 10 minutes away from a Walmart, it would be like an episode of Survivor, man. I would have no idea what to do. One of my passions is music. Greg has pretty much sworn off music from his life. If you ask him the last album he's listened to, I'm not sure if he could tell you. In the world's eyes, there's no reason for Greg and I to be friends. The only thing that unites us is that we're brothers in Christ. And listen, I don't say this to put me and Greg on display as of how great we are. I do this to put on display to see that not only do I see this relationship in our church, just looking at everyone sitting here today, I see those other relationships as well. And I thank you for that because that means we're understanding the gospel. We're living out the gospel. And not only that, but we're blessed with deep relationships that we wouldn't have had otherwise. We have nothing in common, but we have helped each other through very difficult times. We've shared many laughs together. We've held one another accountable spiritually. And we have just been a blessing that I never would have expected. And it was a gift that God gave us because of our identity in Christ. And so I encourage you to continue building those types of relationships. Don't let the the world's views come into this this congregation where we aren't friends with someone because of how they look. If if we are, we don't understand the gospel. That's why in chapter 2, James talks about the sin of partiality. We don't understand the gospel as well as we should if we will not befriend and love someone because of how they look or act. So not only do we have this identity which builds relationships we'd never have otherwise, but also another benefit comes from these kind of relationships. What will happen is that these relationships you build will look strange to the world. It will look odd. And they will take notice of it. Because they're the people who, if they don't wear the right kind of shoes, won't hang out with somebody. But they'll see an old man and a younger guy hanging out, having a good time together, and they'll say, 
why are the two of you friends? And you'll say, because Christ died for my sins. And there's your open door for the gospel. Christ died for our sins. And that's why we're brothers who love one another. Looking at verse 12, we have almost a recap of what we've seen so far. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You will have trials. Remain steadfast in them. Seek God's wisdom through prayer, especially in the trial of how we view others in light of the gospel. Continue persevering, for one day you will receive the crown of life. Moving on in verse 13 through 16, we're met with temptations that lead to death. And James makes a very clear and unmistakable distinction. Trials are for our good, for strengthening our faith, and come from God. However, temptations are from your own sinful desires and lead to death. Do not confuse the two of them. That's why he says, let no one say when you're being tempted, I'm being tempted by God. That is not correct. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. We are responsible for our own sins, and we must not try to place them on God. But here we see the origin of death and sin, which is desires. And it's here we must see Satan's plan of attack and how we need to battle against it. Sin will rarely ever come fully developed and say to you, here I am, I'm sin. If you choose me, you're going to regret it and die. It doesn't say that. No, think back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. What are we told? We're told that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. And he came to Eve and he enticed her to eat of the fruit. And when she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired, she took of the fruit and ate. It was her desire to be made wise like God that drew her in and led her astray into sin. And we all know that the sin brought death. So often as Christians, we think that the key to a successful spiritual life is simply to stop sinning. Which, yes, let's stop sinning. Let's battle against sin. But so often what we mean by that is, I'm not going to do that again. It's reactive. Instead, we must be proactive. We must be proactive in battling against even our desires that could lead to sin. Do you think if Adam and Eve fully understood the weight and the consequences of what would happen when they disobeyed that they would have done it? Of course not. Of course not. They would have known that the fleeting pleasures would never compare to the eternal glory of knowing God. 
And so we must learn from this. We must learn from the scriptures and apply it to our life. When we're being enticed by our own desires, just entertain it for a second. Understand me correctly. Entertain it for a second and play out the scenario of what would happen if you did act on it. You have a desire? Think it through. What's its logical outcome? I promise you, it's not a good one. Use this as a safeguard to keep you from sinning. Say, if I acted on this, these are the terrible consequences that would certainly come, and those would certainly separate me from my communion with God. It's not worth it. No sin is worth it. So we must seek God through prayer, asking His wisdom to allow us to see those evil desires when they start creeping in. When Satan's crafty and he's trying to slide his way into our lives, be on guard against them. Lastly, number five, in verse 17 and 18, we see the perfect gift that brings life. The perfect gift that brings life. Verse 17 tells us of the good gifts that God has given us. He's given us every good gift. And we've seen that so far. We haven't seen an exhaustive list, but we've seen that a gift He gives us is trials. He gives us the gift of prayer. He gives us the gift of unity in Christ. He even gives us the gift of knowing our enemy's plan of attack. And so every good gift comes from God. But there's a perfect gift which He's given us as well. And that perfect gift is seen in verse 18. It's the gift of being brought forth by the word of truth. We were all like Adam and Eve, and we all sinned and rebelled against God. And we were all deserving of the death. We were all deserving of being in hell. But God, giving us a perfect gift, chose of His own free will to bring us forth. And you see it in, in the verse there, that it's done by His own will. God didn't save people because He was lonely, because He needed some friends. He saved us because of His own will. It pleased Him to give us the gift of life. This is how He has shown His love for us. We also see that He does it by His Word, by the Word of truth. And think about your own salvation. Wasn't this how it was accomplished? Whether it was hearing a sermon preached, or reading the Bible for yourselves, or speaking with friends, or other people, or family members, in some way, in form and fashion, the Word was active in your life. Though you were once dead, the Word came in and it called you forth and gave you life. This is how God works in saving sinners. It's through His Word. Well, what should this lead us to do? It should lead us to have a renewed passion for the Bible and the Scriptures and the Word of God. This is how He works. 
Look at verse 18. He tells the readers that they are a first fruits. And what this means is that they're the first yield of the harvest. By God's will, through His Word, they are the first ones to be brought forth. But being the first fruit means that there's more to come. God is going to continue working this way. So what that means for us is that we continue speaking the gospel to those in our lives. It may seem fruitless at times. There may be someone at work that you've been trying to minister to for years, and it seems like nothing's getting through to them. But God uses His Word to call forth people. So don't lose hope. Continue speaking the Word. This is how God saves His people and will continue saving His people. So like I said at the beginning of this sermon, this passage has so much meat to it that it's hard to get to all of it. It's really hard to get to all of it. And honestly, I think that we've just scratched the surface of all the spiritual wealth of truth that is here. And so I said I was going to challenge you. And here it is. I challenge you throughout the rest of this week to take it upon yourself to figure out the deeper truths here. To see how they apply to your personal, individual life and scenarios that you've been placed in. If you're someone that's here and you're saying, I wish I knew how to study God's Word. I want to go know God more, but I don't know how. This is how you do it. You read His Word. You pray about it. You think deeply about it. And then you apply it to your life. This is what Bible study looks like. And so there's five paragraphs. We had five points. And so my challenge is that the next five days, Monday through Friday, let this be your goal this week, is to dig deeper into the truths of James 1. Ask more questions of it and seek to apply it. And so just to get you started in the right direction, just to give you a few ideas to get the wheels turning, what are questions we could ask? What are things we could think of? Well, in accords with the trials that strengthen faith, we could ask ourselves, how do I view trials? How have I viewed them in the past? Do I truly believe that God's working them for my good, or do I just say that? How can I be led to trust God more in trials? How should this change how I view trials in the future? How should this change how I comfort people in trials? In prayer that seeks wisdom, point number two, let's ask how often do I even pray? And when I do pray, how often do I come to God seeking His wisdom? Number three, identity that unites the church. How do I view other believers? Am I quick to judge them according to the world standards, or do I see them as brothers and sisters in Christ? What are relationships that I could build within the context of my own local church? In temptations that lead to death, Let's identify the desires that cause us to sin. And even more, let's confess them to someone else. When's the last time you sat down with your spouse or your friend and said, these are the things I struggle with? It's embarrassing. And it's difficult. 
It makes you feel like a failure. But then you get it out in the open and you have someone to keep you accountable. And that person you've told, they know how they can help you and encourage you and safeguard you from sin now. This is how brothers build one another up in the faith. What's my plan of action for battling against sin? And lastly, in the perfect gift that brings life, we can ask questions such as, how did God save me? Through His Word. How did He do it through His Word? Do I believe that this is how He truly works? Has this impacted any way that I share the Gospel with coworkers and friends and family? Has it led me to more faithful proclamation? And I pray that throughout this week we... We do this not just as some kind of homework, but for spiritual growth, for glorifying God with our lives. I pray that we would allow these first 18 verses of James to lead us to a life of holiness and love for God and all of the good gifts that He's given us. Let's pray.